Well, what does it take to get a $1 million grant with no strings attached? All you've got to do is be a genius, or more accurately, receive a MacArthur Fellowship, which is commonly referred to as a genius grant. More formally, it's described as a $800,000 US dollar no-strings-attached award to extraordinarily talented and creative individuals as an investment in their potential. This year, 25 people became MacArthur Fellows, and I'm very pleased to say that we're joined on Radio National by one of them now. Stephen Ruggles is Regent Professor of History and Population Studies at the University of Minnesota and the Director of IPUMS, and he's been described by Wired magazine as history's king of quant. Stephen Ruggles, welcome to RN. Thank you very much. Uh, Stephen, your field is historical demography. Could you explain for us what that means? Well, uh, historical demography is the history of population, which uh, narrowly is reproduction uh, and death, birth and death, uh, and but, but more broadly is everything that's related to that. So uh, things like uh, marriage, divorce, single parenthood, multi-generational families, sex, what have you, are all related to uh, 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 historical demography. And really your sort of unique contribution over the years has been to wrangle huge amounts of data and to draw different types of um, observations from that data. Um, I described you earlier as the, the director of IPUMS. What, what is IPUMS and, and how did you create it? Well, we actually around here call it IPUMS. Oh, sorry, my mistake. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. You know, we came along a lot, uh, around a long time before the iPhone did. Uh, so, uh, 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 yeah, we've been working on this for 30 years. Uh, and IPUMS contains uh, uh, m- uh, most of the world's accessible demographic data. Mm. It includes uh, census data, for example, for the United States, 100% of the people enumerated uh, between 1790 and the present. Uh, uh, and uh, at the individual level, we we have data from 156 countries. Unfortunately, the big holdout is Australia. Oh, no. We have no data from Australia, uh, but we're still hoping that sometime we'll get some. Well, that's interesting. Well, well, why case, is we, that, Stephen? Why is it? Um, I don't know. I, I think there's concerns about confidentiality. I, I think they're exaggerated concerns. We've had uh, we've had this individual level census data uh, available uh, in other countries for the last 60 years and nobody's ever been identified. Nobody's ever alleged that anybody's been identified. So so uh, it, it's really not a security threat. Uh, for for you know disclosure of personal information, yeah, it, but I think that the Australians are especially concerned about that. That sounds like uh, Australia's holding out against the general tide when it comes to uh, IPMs. Uh, as you say, uh, over a hundred countries, census data spanning over two hundred years. Could you give us some examples of the sort of insights that data on that scale uh, makes possible? Well, sure. It's had uh, we've had you know results that uh, have completely turned upside down what our understanding was of uh, long run social and economic change. For one, one, one example uh, uh, in in the 
uh, in the past, uh, uh, people thought that uh, social mobility, the ability to climb the economic ladder had increased over time with industrialization and change in the 20th century. And also the geographic mobility had, had increased over time, that people are more and more moving uh, and, and so on. And both of those uh, uh, turn out to be just the opposite of the truth. In the middle of the 19th century, social mobility and geographic mobility was much higher in the United States than it is today. Uh, we don't know about Australia, of course, because we don't have the data. <laughs> No, yeah, we're going to have to speak to the authorities about that, Stephen Ruggles. But it's really fascinating to see, uh, yeah, what what sort of insights are are possible. Stephen, how did you come to the field of historical demography? Oh, I guess uh, you know, I got interested in it when I was an undergraduate, uh, and uh, there were I was in a graduate seminar. Uh, and uh, there was this huge debate over the effects of demographic change on family composition uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. I could do something with that. And uh, so so I did. Yeah, and, and uh, a lot of your research was on um, the, the changes in multi-generational families, looking at things like single parenthood, divorce and marriage. Could you tell us a little bit about that work you've done? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> the, um, the, the, the consensus used to be that uh, 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 the, 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 in Northwestern Europe, the family was always nuclear uh, and and really that it turns out that that's mostly an artifact of of demography. That is that people uh, uh, married late in life, they died early, uh, and so there was a relatively small overlap between generations, and they had a lot of kids. And so the the elderly population was divided up between lots and lots of people in the younger generation. So not that many people could were in the position where they could form multi-generational families. But if you look at it from the perspective of the elderly, the, the great majority of the elderly in, say, the mid-19th century United States uh, did 72% of uh, people 65 and older in the United States in 1850 lived with their grown children. Uh, and uh, that declined uh, to about 9% at its low point in 1990. It's been going back up since then. On RN, we're speaking with Professor Stephen Ruggles, Professor of History and Population Studies at the University of Minnesota and Director of IPAMS, who's also the recipient in 2022 of a MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, Stephen, what's it like to uh, become a MacArthur Fellow? It's a fairly uh, significant opportunity in Australian dollars, at least over a million dollars of, of grant with no strings attached. Um, how did you find out about it? Oh, they gave me a phone call uh, um, uh, right here in my office on my mobile phone, and I had no idea that how they got the number. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they just called me up, and uh, and when when they told me who it was, I thought, oh, they're going to want me to do a review or <laughs> something like that. And uh, I was I was expecting a, a solicitation for a political contribution. You know, we're in the heat of our political season here. Indeed. Uh, and that's usually all, the only calls I get. On but my it was quite the opposite. Mobile. Yeah. 
and and what sort of opportunity does uh, becoming a MacArthur Fellowship open up for you in terms of uh, the sorts of projects that you might be able to take on now, courtesy of the grant? Yeah, well, I think that the the big thing I'm concerned about is the sustainability of the data infrastructure we've built up. It's not hard for uh, us to get grants to develop new data sets uh, or to develop new infrastructure for disseminating or preserving the data and that sort of thing. But it's it's very hard to get money to uh, su- support existing data sets and and as we as we build uh you know billions and billions of records uh uh and whatnot you've got to constantly update the the metadata and the software and stuff like that and this costs money and so uh, i'm going to work on figuring out ways to keep this sustainable uh you know i'm i'm not getting any younger and uh, at some point um uh, uh this is going to have to be self-supporting. So you're not just going to live large on the MacArthur Fellowship, you're really applying it to the um, perpetuation of, of IPAMS and, and, and the other data. I mean, that that did, does uh, bring to mind something that I wanted to ask you about, uh, Stephen, which is obviously, as you described for us, it was initially your sort of interest in the particular social trends um, that you heard about in a lecture and you thought you wanted to research that more. But now you are um, the, the person responsible for a huge piece of sort of intellectual infrastructure, if, if you like. How much of your time is uh, caught up with having to wrangle these this huge database as opposed to being able to do uh, research with the data that's, um, that's being generated? Well, I have, you know, uh, an incredible uh, group of collaborators and staff that actually do the wrangling. I don't do that anymore. I did Back in the 1990s, the early 2000s, I was the chief programmer. I'm not anymore. We've got 18 people, uh, 18 software developers uh, working on that type of stuff. So, so, uh, and we've got uh, a great group of data scientists and and uh, and and uh, social researchers to, to to work on it. What I do mostly now is raise money. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I write a lot of grant proposals and, uh, uh, you know, try to try to support all of those people uh, uh, so that we can keep moving forward. Stephen, could you give us a, a sense of what, you know, in your mind are the sort of the new frontiers of historical demography? I assume with uh, technological improvements and the like, more things become possible as the years go by. Uh, oh, yeah, this is this is an amazing moment. Uh, to be a historical demographer, we're we're really on the brink of of just doing being able to do amazing things. And part of it is because both in the United States and in a number of uh, Europe, northwestern European countries, UK and the Nordic countries particularly, we've got 100% individual level data uh, going uh, from the uh, 18th or early 19th century up until the mid 20th century. Uh, and, and in the case of the United States, we can go all the way to the present. And we've got people's 
identifiers so that we can trace them over their lives and across generations. And we can link it then to other data sources like military records, social security records in the United States or, or uh, other types of health records, Medicare, Medicaid in the United States and that sort of thing. Uh, and this is going on in Sweden and it's going on in uh, here in the United States and uh, and in the UK. Uh, and uh, this this is making possible all kinds of, of new studies where you look at people's early life conditions or even their parents or their grandparents or their great grandparents' early life conditions and, and, and see what the impact of that is over time. Uh, or, you know, you could just trace these things and you can figure out, you know, uh, we can study the impact of the industrial revolution, urbanization, immigration, you know, the, the, the whole thing is spread out right in front of us. Uh, and and we, can, we can look at everybody. One of the things about IPIMS is it's not only the world's largest population database, but it's the most widely used as well. Could you give us a couple of examples that sort of scope out the, the width of that use and the sorts of uh, questions and organisations that engage with the database? Yeah, well, I think we've got about um, 270,000 uh, registered users. These are mostly academics. A lot of them are graduate students. Uh, and uh, the biggest group is economists, but there's people in public policy and uh, sociology, history, geography, uh, and so on. And uh, they download about a terabyte of data every day and they publish about uh, 3,000 articles every year. And so, um, and, and on just the widest range of topics you could imagine, because these are really general purpose data. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, in terms of expanding uh, the database, are there particular regions, I mean, other than Australia, that... that Australia, um, yeah, would be number that's one. That's the big one. That's the, I mean, that's the big takeover from this interview. We've got to, we've got to um, see if uh, Australia can be... Actually... Um, our other big gap is Japan, right? Uh, and uh, and and also, well, we well, I'm very anxious to get Korea, and I think uh, into the collection, and that will happen soon. I think Korea has amazing data every five years, going back to 1960. Really nice microdata with all kinds of very cool variables. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to going to ask you whether there are particular countries uh, that that have very very rich data sets and why that's the case. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it varies, obviously, uh, around the world, uh, you know, and, and data quality uh, varies as well. Um, uh, the uh, as I as I mentioned, in terms of the historical data, the, the, the best countries are the Nordic countries mm. and uh, and the UK and uh, and the US and Canada. Uh, uh, but uh, there are some hopes for other European countries as well. Uh, and China has some interesting uh, data. It's not really uh, very comparable. We have recent, of course, uh, data for, from China, but in terms of the historical data, a lot of it's based on genealogies and stuff. Mm. So it's 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 a little different, but right. uh, the, they also have very rich historical data. Well, it's been fascinating uh, discussing historical demography with you today, Stephen Ruggles, and congratulations on the MacArthur Fellowship. It's been uh, great speaking with you and wish you all the best for uh, the new era of spending that for that uh, million dollar grant.
Thank you very much. That's Stephen Ruggles, Regent Professor of History and Population Studies and the Director of IPIMS, which is very popular around the world, but unfortunately it seems not um, with Australian data. Perhaps that will change soon. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.